Bernie Casey is Dr. Black. Hiya, Doc. No, you can't try that. Sarah, I'm on a human. A monster he could not control had taken over his very soul. A screaming demon rages inside, turning him into Mr. Hyde. This is no nightmare, Dr. Black. You're real. Super strong, supernatural, and super bad. That's a cross between the abominable snowman and Willie the werewolf. Indestructible. Nothing can stop it. Not bombs, bullets, or bulldozers. No man alive could take that guy. But he's on his feet when he hits the street. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. His victim thinks she's tricked him, but she hasn't a prayer when he leaps through the air. Shot full of lead and he still ain't dead. In a moment, you look like me. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. Don't give him no sass or he'll kick your ass. Jump out, Jack, for your skull is cracked. The ball flies are trying, but their bodies keep flying. The dude stood tall till his butt hit the wall. When the boys go rushing, Mr. Hyde starts crushing. The crowd is hushing as the blood comes gushing. There's a heel behind the wheel when Hyde takes his ride. No man can survive when he shifts into drive. It ain't no jive trying to stay alive. Silky won't revive from his final nosedive. Brother man, this situation is rapidly becoming insalubrious, meaning we're about to stomp a mud hole in your ass. From the first burst to the last blast, it's Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, starring Bernie Casey, Rosalind Cash, Stu Gillum, directed by William Blackella Crane. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. We are doing something very different from something we've done before. Tonight I have a, a new podcast co-host, someone that I've known for a very long time, but that I have never podcasted with. So if this turns into a cluster blank, you will know why. Uh, we can apparently talk to each other just fine, so I'm hoping this goes well, but you never know. You know, you add a recording microphone and things blow up. Tonight, before we uh, even get to the film, I want to introduce you to my co-host for the evening. His name is Larry Underwood, and... Uh, I've known you for roughly ever. Yeah, it's since college days, man. Which oh, was, man. We won't discuss how long ago that was. <laughs> Sometime mid-80s. Well, I'll just, yeah, let's put it this way. Decades yeah. have passed since oh we God. first met. Yes, I guess it has. So, which is uh, which is terrible. But, you know, you say we haven't done a podcast together, but no. we sort of we sort of have because podcasts, I was thinking about this earlier today, are really a natural progression for what you used to do back in the old days when we would make our tape letters and send them back and forth to each other because you oh, were, wow. were in you were in Clarksville no I no, mean no, in Cooksville, uh, Cookville, Cookville, Cookville yeah. yeah in Cookville at um, in, at uh, um, Tennessee Austin Tech County. oh yes Tennessee Damn Tech it. man and you're, not that, you're not that old are you that old. <laughs> and I was at MTSU, and we would make tape letters and send them back and forth to each yep. other, which were nothing more than songs cut together with rambling weirdness of what's yeah. going on in our yeah. lives. 
And much like putting together a little podcast for one person, and we put yeah. the cassette tape in the mail. You're right. You're right. I mean, we uh, we can we can tell people. We used to call them WFUK. <laughs> I forgot about that. It was you forgot about that. That's the only thing I remember. Uh, <laughs> but we called these. We we mailed these things back and forth to each other, uh, just just because we we know we were going to college in in cities far distant from each other. And oh I, uh, I I worked on uh, the Tennessee Tech. Uh, radio station is kind yes. of a, a secondary a secondary job, uh, and of course just something for fun. You know, therefore I had access to all this recording equipment and all this music that I didn't necessarily own long before the internet, folks. So trust me, it's not always <laughs> been that easy to to grab a song you don't necessarily own. And yeah, we sent those. You're right. I guess that is yeah. kind of a, a, a nascent form of podcasting. Yeah, you were podcasting we were before podcasting was podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of freaking terrifying. But, Larry, uh, people should probably know a little bit about you because, um, as I say, we haven't, we, haven't, we haven't podcasted before, so I've never introduced you to, mm. uh, to the larger uh, world of uh, the bloody pit. So I, can, I could reel off a number of things that I know you for, but maybe it's best that you do. What no, do you- sure. Well, I have hosted horror movies in the Nashville uh, market since 1999 as Dr. Gang Green, Physician of Fright. I uh, had a show on our local CW station for a number of years and um, still doing some YouTube stuff with that. Um, most recently, I've started writing, uh, writing short stories, had a number of them published in different places. Just got a short story published in an uh, upcoming Halloween um, anthology, well, e-zine um, coming up uh, later this month. Oh, what's the name of the easing? Uh, it's called Siren's Call. Okay. And they're doing a Halloween issue. And this story I've actually was published last year in a printed anthology book uh, from Horrified Press. It's uh, kind of a uh, short story based on sort of my kids' time as their, their childhood, sort of partly on my own childhood, and sort of like a like an equal parts, uh, just complete fantasy. But it's all mashed together, and it all revolves around a mean old bitch that lives two doors down from me. <laughs> <laughs> that actually does. Okay. Yeah, she really does. And, and people call her the Ditch Witch because she was. She's gotten. She doesn't do this anymore. But when my kids were young, she was obsessed with her ditch and would chase off kids. Anybody that came near her ditch, she would just chase them off. And and she came to my door knocking on my door one time because my kids were playing in her ditch. And how dare they? And <laughs> oh she had all these. Flowers, plant. Anyway, it's it's the that's yeah, odd. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So anyway, I took it all out in this short story that's been published a couple times now. So <laughs> thank you, you for the inspiration. I should give her a copy. You here, here, you you mean ass woman. You you inspired a piece of art. There, you happy now? Exactly. Whether you wanted to or not. Uh, well, the thing that uh, right now that I think that you're probably best known for is your kind of uh, long-standing, continuing uh, series on YouTube. Concerning the films of Vincent Price. Mm, yeah, the fantastic films of Vincent Price. I am doing a video series going through all the films of Vincent Price from first to last in chronological order. Uh, um, sort of re- part review, part commentary on the films of Price, and I'd like to, and show clips. So, you know, there's been books that have covered the films of Price over of the course. years. Some great ones out there, but nobody's really done it in video form. And it's kind of nice to see, you know, the various looks of Price because it will change from movie to movie as he, you know, from his younger days, of course, uh, not only the way he ages, but the way he wears his facial hair, the costuming, everything. When you, when you started the series, I thought that it was an audacious thing to do because all of us horror fans of a certain type are huge Vincent Price fans. And I think it's very hard 
to run across someone who's ever seen a Vincent Price horror film and who isn't a fan of Vincent Price because it's, it's, he's, he's irresistible. But when you announced that you were going to do this and that you were going to do all of his films in chronological order, uh, you know, starting as far back, what was it, in the 40s? Right. I thought to myself, wow, man, that's going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to be trolling through a lot of films in, the, in his early days when he was a bit player and, a, and, a, and a, just a, you know, a kind of a contract player for, for, different play, for different studios and things like that before you start getting to the juicy things like Dragonwick and, and pieces that, uh, you know, Laura and things like that in the 40s when you start seeing him kind of blossom into a really good supporting actor and then start being made, able to make that move into, into full-fledged starring roles. And uh, I thought, man, that's, that's, I don't know how interesting that's going to be. But I was wrong because it was very interesting because I've read uh, two or three books on Vincent Price's films and his career and his life over the years. You're right. There are plenty of books out there on Vincent Price, but it is very different to just visually watch to be able to go through these 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 short pieces because each one of your your pieces on each film is under 10 minutes okay. so it's it's possible to sit down for an hour and to go through five or six of his movies and watch his progression not just as an actor but just watch this young man grow into that face that we all know and love and it's, it's not like his bone structure changes or anything like no, that but his but, voice his vocal yeah. inflections changes from right. movie to movie and, and it's uh, like I said he ages and, and it's it's always interesting to see what the costume so many period pieces you know what yeah. the costume he looks like the set design everything so it's kind of nice to be able to visually visually see some of that so yeah and, and it was fun for me I really liked the movie's Going through the movies that I haven't seen before, yeah, you know. Well, I'm, like, I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of some of the more obscure ones like uh, Baron of Arizona and things like that. It's a great one. It's which is a great little movie, and it's it's mm-hmm. one that's not better known. And I wish I wish it were because it is such a first of all, it is based on such an odd but true kind of piece of history from from the United States. And the thing about Vincent Price to me is that, uh, and this is just a little sideline about Vincent Price is that I don't think anybody ever concerned themselves. When Vincent Price was playing a British character, even though he doesn't change his his he doesn't change his voice, he doesn't affect a British accent. But at the same time, you just accept him. So you you, you watch him in Witchfinder General, and it's the same Vincent Price who was in every other movie you've ever seen him in. He's not changing his voice to sound as if he's British, and it just you just accept it, even though all the other actors around him are definitely British. Yeah, he does that arist- aristocratic yeah yeah, yeah he does inflection that that passes sort of a pseudo. British, you know, it's yeah. not really, it's not really British, but yeah, but yeah, I like some of the the more obscure stuff too, and and those are fun. Uh, the one he did, uh, the pirate movie with uh, Errol Flynn. Oh, which I've still never seen. Yeah, what Adventures of Captain Fabian? Oh, Adventures of Captain Fabian, and that's I think that's available now. I think that's something you can actually get your hands on pretty easily, and that's one that I want I want to check out. But listen, this is not uh, this is not we're not supposed to be, supposed to be sitting here talking about Vincent <laughs> Price. Vincent Price, we'll do that all night. First of all, what we're talking about tonight, a black exploitation horror film called Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde, or Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. I've seen the title phrased both ways from 1976. Uh, and the fact that it's a black exploitation horror film means that it's a subset of black exploitation films, which I'm a big fan of and I've been a big fan of for years and years and years. But the black exploitation horror subgenre is much smaller, it turns out, than I originally thought it was. Um, First of all, black exploitation films generally the ones when I think of black exploitation. Of course, what I think of are the crime films, all the the crime and action films. You think of Shaft, you think of Slaughter, Coffee, Foxy Brown, Black Caesar, 
all those great those 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 kind of you know classic ones that star Richard Roundtree and Pam Greer and just a stable of really great black actors who really got the chance to shine in these wonderful black exploitation crime films. Mm-hmm. But there was this subset of black exploitation horror films that. Like I say, I always thought there were more than it turns out there are. Because everybody knows Blackula. Okay, Blackula is the big one. It was the first one. And it's the one that everybody knows. And that basically, it seems like everybody who's a horror fan really is kind of a fan of Blackula. Sure. William Marshall's so solid in that movie. William Marshall is fantastic. He is, he, without, I'll be honest, I don't think that we, I think that if another actor played that role, I don't think the film would work at all. Mm. I don't think that Blackula would have flown. I don't think it would have garnered a sequel. I don't think it would have been worth a crap, to be honest. Right. It is William Marshall's gravitas as an actor and his ability to pull off things that most actors, I don't know, I don't even think they would even try without feeling like they were doing something really, really ridiculous. But it's almost like William Marshall being this, <laughs> this Shakespearean trained actor who knew exactly what he was doing at all times just took it and ran and, with you it. You know, the great thing about Vincent Price, flashing back to him, is that voice. And the same thing with mm-hmm. William Marshall. It's mm-hmm. that voice. You yes. know, it's so powerful. Well, both of them staged trained. People who knew how to use their body and their voice to, to, to most effective uh, ends. And they do it very well. And Blackula, of course, the only uh, black exploitation horror film that I'm aware of that actually got a sequel. And I'll be honest with you, I prefer the sequel to the original film. Hmm. I like Scream, Blackula, Scream more than I like Blackula. Interesting. Uh, but when you start looking at the list of films, of the black the black exploitation horror films, it is a short list, and it's not a it's not a list of uh, really great movies. Some of them are good. Some of them are are, are so bad that it makes my teeth hurt. Uh, and I'll just mention Blackenstein. <laughs> To yeah. get that off my chest. That was just hard to watch. Yes, you know, it's terrible. It's just, it's just dull, and it, that which is the worst thing a movie can be. Yes, you know? yes. And for and and which considering the subject matter, there's no excuse for it to be dull, but it is. So, and by the way, speaking of Blackenstein, yeah, yeah. have you ever heard of the Blackenstein Murder House? No, no, no. You mentioned this the other day, and I just <laughs> pa- I had you pause because I'm like, I have no idea what this okay, is about. Okay, this is for you. Can't make this shit up. Okay, what is? It? I, I mean, the the writer. For Blackenstein was a guy named Frank. I think it's Celetri or something like that. Okay. So, so this guy, uh, former crime, connected. You All know? right. So, got, a, got, a gangster too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got out of it. Got got into making movies. He he wrote Blackenstein. All right. This guy lived in a house that was formerly owned by Bella Lugosi. Really? Yeah, yeah. And was murdered. Murdered in the house, and it remains an unsolved mystery to this day. And if you Google Blackenstein Murder House, you you can find the uh, a real estate company where the house just sold just a couple of years ago, and you can see pictures of the house that Lucas used to live in. That this dude, this cat that wrote, well, I'm, <laughs> Blackula, I'm sure I mean, that uh, Blackenstein was murdered. <laughs> so the guy who wrote Blackenstein was murdered in this house. I'm sure that that wasn't on the brochure attempting <laughs> to sell this house. I'm sure what was on the brochure is Bella Lugosi used to live here. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. My raise property values a little bit. <laughs> says, uh, in 82, Celetri was found shot to death in the house. As, yeah, and as far as we know, the murder was never solved. Wow. Oh, what? and the dude also apparently directed a movie called Black the Ripper. And it's supposed to be a lost film, although I have read that it's about three quarters finished and that there are prints of it floating around. Look, even if it's as bad as Blackenstein... I probably want to try to see whatever footage exists. So. I mean, it's Black the Ripper. I mean, what, I know, know. I know. <laughs> it damn near writes itself. You got me on the title alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> as I said, there really aren't that many 
you know, black exploitation horror films, which did shock me. I honestly thought that I was gonna, I was gonna look this up and just be flabbergasted by the number of them that I, that I need to track down and see. But to be honest, from the '70s, which is when I generally consider the the the, the black exploitation horror films that I'm talking about to have existed, not that there haven't been some since then, but we're talking about Blackula, Scream, Blackula, Scream. That's 1972 and '73. Uh, Sugar Hill. From '74, big fan of it. Which you're is not, a, you're not so much. I need to. I know. Dude, I, I, I know. I, I should be, but there's just something about Sugar Hill that doesn't connect with me. Mm. And I mean, it has everything that should appeal to mm-hmm. me. It's a black exploitation horror film that focuses on voodoo zombies. It's right up my alley, man. It's perfect. It's yeah. the kind of thing that I that I just think about and immediately am attracted to. But I just what I'm hoping is that there's eventually a really good Blu-ray release of Sugar Hill, so I can give it another shot because I'm I. What I fear is that what I'm watching are subpar prints, and that's yeah. keeping me from really. Kind okay, of so I'm going to talk to the Bell Court. I'm going to see if next year for their 12 Hours of Terror they'll get Sugar Hill as one of their movies, and, and it'll be on great. 35. So that'd be great. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it really well. Yeah. Uh, you've already mentioned Abby from '74, which, which is uh, the, the Bell Court did show at yeah. their 12 Hours of Terror a couple of years ago, and fantastic movie. Well, in case you don't know, Abby is a, a kind of black exploitation version of The Exorcist, done mm-hmm. by uh, K- Kentucky, yeah, Kentucky filmmaker William Girdler. Uh, I've seen it. I've seen it talked about as a parody of The Exorcist, and that's not quite true. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's more of a straight. If you call it a parody, that means you're laughing at the movie, which I can kind of understand at times. But Abby is a really entertaining movie, and uh, it's the movie that uh, <laughs> that. Uh, got uh, ripped out of theaters because uh, the the producers got sued by the producers of The Exorcist because it was quite obviously a rip-off of The Exorcist. Was Abby. This was Abby. <laughs> a woman loved and in love. Until that night. When something evil came looking for a soul to possess. Stop thinking about your husband. <laughs> that creep. Forget him. Was this Abby? Now the fun starts. Grandma, the holder. Hear me, demon. Leave this woman body. Abby, rated R. One of my all-time favorite uh, black exploitation horror films, and possibly one of the best they ever made in the '70s, is called JD's Revenge, uh, which was directed by Arthur Marks. Uh, basically, a dead gangster takes over the body of a young uh, black law student in order to uh, track down the people who murdered him. Uh, JD's Revenge is actually pretty easily available. It was put out on DVD years ago, and it's uh, I think it's part of the the MGM Soul Cinema collection. And uh, JD's Revenge from '76. That is a heck of a film hmm. and really I've good. Not seen that one with some really good performances. I highly recommend it. It's a top-notch film. Also from uh, 1973, there's the uh, kind of uh, vampire art film directed by Bill Gunn called Ganja and Hess, which is an interesting film. Uh, definitely has a unique way of uh, someone becoming a vampire. Uh, basically, an archaeologist is stabbed with a cursed dagger, and that's how he becomes a vampire. It's an interesting film. It's not one that I particularly warm to because I think the art house end of it overwhelms the horror end of it, and it kind of gets a little dull for me, but I do admire it. Yeah. And to be honest, from the 70s, 
other than the film we're going to talk about tonight, which is uh, Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's really it. It's pretty, like I said, I expected there to be 10 or 15 of these things. Right. Of course, Scream, Blackula, Scream. Well, yeah, I mentioned that up front. We've got the two Blackula films. But, you know, other than those, that, that, that there's not that many there. Right. So I was a little surprised. So what we're going to talk about tonight will be uh, one of the more interesting examples of uh, black exploitation horror called Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde, rather loosely based on The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. And uh, it's an interesting film to be sure. So what we'll do, we'll take a quick break, we'll come back, and we're going to dive into a discussion of this film. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Stadium. We let things pile up in the DVR, we add them to our queues, we wait for the DVDs and Blu-rays. We time shift. The Time Shifters podcast. Sci-fi, horror, fantasy, superheroes, comedy, action, film, television, maybe some not-so-current events. Find us on iTunes or at timeshifterspodcast.com. Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde from 1976. Um, this is a neat and very interesting movie. Uh, I was I was sent the link to the YouTube p- presentation of this film, which is, by the way, the way I've seen the movie. Uh, if you are interested in seeing this movie after you hear us talk about it or even before, uh, you can go to YouTube, type in the title, and you will find it. Uh, my only complaint will be a complaint that you hear from me often which is that what you're looking at on YouTube isn't the best-looking print in the world. I mean, it's completely watchable. It's not as if you're not going to be able to understand what's going on or not going to be able to see what's going on or hear it. But 
there is that part of me that knows that if we could get a really good, well-mastered DVD or Blu-ray of this, my estimation of this movie would go up even higher than it already is. Right. Yeah, I found I watched it on uh, VHS. This past, you've got you've got the old original VHS. I do. This past summer, I did an appearance at a convention in Nashville, the tattoo show, and there was a guy set that just happened to have a stack of, of VHS tapes, and this Doctor Black, Mister Hyde tape was one of the ones. I was like, oh hell yeah, give me that! So it's the big clamshell version here. And which company put it out? Uh, United Home Video. Wow, I have no idea. I yeah. know so little. I know so little about the VHS history. So right. So anyway, that's I watched this first, and then I rewatched uh, watched it a second time on YouTube. Well, here's the thing: I'm I'm betting money that the version that I watched on uh, YouTube is just a, a rip of the VHS because it's not mm-hmm. been, uh, as far as I know, it's not been given any kind of digital release uh, mm-hmm. from the vaults by anybody anywhere at any time. So all that's out there floating around are VHS prints to one degree or another, digitized or not. So if you want to see it, it is on YouTube, and I do recommend checking it out if you're interested. Now, let's talk a little bit about the director, William Crane. Um, this is man, He's still around, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He is. I friended him on Facebook this last week. Very cool. He directed. He also directed Blackula, mm-hmm. as we mentioned before. The first one, but not the sequel. But not the sequel. Not, not the one that I prefer, which That's is... A- <laughs> I, hate to say, I hate to put it that way, but it's, it's, it is true. Um He's uh, he he was known he's known primarily these days. If you look back at his his list of credits as a TV director, he directed pretty much if it was a if it was on television in America in the seventies, he directed at least one episode. We're talking Mod Squad, Starsky and Hutch, SWAT, uh, the Rookies, Dukes of Hazard, all the way through the all the way through the eighties with Matt Houston and up to the nineties with Designing Women. The man was primarily a TV director, but he did direct a few movies. And uh, one of them is our film tonight. The fact that he is primarily known as a TV director does kind of show itself a little bit in the framing and the shot setups in this movie and in Blackula, I might as, I might as well admit as well. So that's something that uh, when we uh, start talking about the movie proper, I'll have a few things to say. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about uh, the two main stars of the film. Uh, Dr. Henry Pride, uh, of the title, of course, is played by Bernie Casey. Now, Bernie Casey was uh, a record-breaking track and field athlete uh, who uh, ended up playing in the NFL for 11 seasons for two different teams, the the 49ers from uh, 61 to the end of the 60s, and then uh, and then with Rams. the L.A. Rams. Mm-hmm. The Rams, the last two years he was in, yeah. And uh, he, had a very, he had a very productive career, and as a matter of fact, as, was well-known as a, as, as a football player. And, of course, it didn't hurt that Bernie Casey's a very – erudite, intelligent, uh, smart guy who knew that, you know, this football thing would last forever, and so he had his eye on a different career. And he moved into films rather smoothly, I might say. Uh, I think, do you remember the first place you ever saw Bernie Casey? Because I, I remember distinctly knowing exactly when I saw this guy in a movie and knew, oh, I, this, this I guy. I mean, probably Revenge of Nerds. Is, really? Yeah, I mean, it's probably where I, yeah, for me, best. For me, I know... I know precisely that it was Sharky's Machine, hmm. uh, the Burt Reynolds film. I remember seeing it on like HBO in the mid '80s, and go, "That guy is good, man! I really like this Bernie." Casey. My dogs decided to speak up. You guys like him too, huh? Yeah, everybody likes Bernie Casey, or is it Burt Reynolds? Do you like Burt Reynolds too? Are you no, good now? They're silent on Burt. Silent okay. on Burt. We're good. Casey began his acting career in uh, Guns of the Magnificent Seven, which is a sequel to The Magnificent Seven. Uh, and then he moved into doing a couple of movies with Jim Brown. So you had two NFL stars doing mm-hmm. a few movies together. 
And he even, uh, he was in uh, Brian's Song, one of the most popular TV movies of all time. And uh, he was also in uh, The Martian Chronicles. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that You'd think that I would have remembered him from The Martian Chronicles, but no, where he stuck out for yeah. me for some reason was in Sharky's Machine. Never Say Never Again. Uh, yes, of course. He played Felix Leiter in Never Say Never Again with Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he was uh, in Revenge of the Nerds, which he's, you know, pretty much everybody's unforgettable in Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> that is a movie that it's hard to watch now in modern days. Have you tried that? No. Because there's a flat out, I mean, to be blunt... One of your heroes rapes a chick. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And it's played for laughs. That's dude. true with the math. Yeah. 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 I mean, in, at the time. My, my revenge and nerd uh, story is that I met Robert Carradine and pissed him off. Wow. What happened? Because <laughs> all I did, I was I wanted to talk about his dad. He was just like, instant, just, I walked up and said, oh. hey, your dad was great, you know? I love your dad, and he was a big, man, you, he, Larry, and, you know, Jesus, every man. movie that he were, ever was in, he brought a little bit of class to, and he just, it's like, just say, complete, like, flip the switch I know. off. Come on, man, dude has his own career. Come on. Jesus Christ. Yes. You, okay. I just want to smack you in the head. Yeah. Come on. You're cool, but your dad rocks. Your dad is awesome. Well, of course, uh, Bernie was also in, Bernie Casey was also in I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, which I know we both love. Oh my God, I love that movie. Great, great film. And uh, he was he even popped up in uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and he was even in an episode of Babylon 5, so mm. it hits all my little geek buttons. Now, uh, Bernie Casey is one of those guys who, now let's, let's be blunt, there are football players, NFL players, who tried to move into the movies and failed miserably. Not everybody was able to make that transition. Bernie Casey was one of the people who could make that transition. It's clear. He had a very lengthy career. He did movies for well, well over 15 years, close to 20. Uh, he, was, he, he never really hurt for work. Obviously, he knew how to do his job, and he did it effectively and well enough that people enjoyed working with him, and he kept coming back and doing more films. That's really cool. Because, like I say, if you've ever tried to watch the, the, the few attempts that Joe Namath made at being a movie star, <laughs> you know that not all NFL stars make that transition right. at all. Right. So, Bernie Casey was a talented man. And, uh, oh, we I almost forgot, let's not forget that uh, he was in Gargoyles. Gargoyles and In the Mouth of Madness. Oh, I forgot. He was in the Mouth of Madness. That's right. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay, yeah. so, yeah, you're right. Some, the killer career, really. How, how can you go wrong? You're right. His, his career stretched to, man, 20 years plus, clearly. Uh, well, at any rate, we're, we're fans of Bernie Casey. He's always someone I like seeing pop up in a movie. Because I know when I, when I pitched to you the idea of doing this show, I was like, hey, man, it's got Bernie Casey, Rosalind Cash. You're like, okay, you didn't say no problem. Yeah, yeah. You got me. I literally <laughs> said, stop right there. That's all I need to know. <laughs> Speaking of Rosalind Cash, where most people are going to know Rosalind Cash, especially if you're a horror fan, is from the Omega Man. Mm-hmm. She was the female lead alongside our man, <laughs> the Omega Man himself, Charles Nestor. That's right. Now, she made these. Uh, she th- these movies were made uh, just a few years apart, and it's Rosalind Cash. You see her on screen, and you know exactly who you're talking about. But I was shocked to discover that uh, her career uh, is she's kind of best known, really in a lot of circles for the, the the few years that she played on General Hospital right before she passed away from cancer, which kind of shocked me. First of all, I was kind of hoping that she was still alive, but uh, sadly, not to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also apparently had a really good uh, career in the theater and was known for uh, doing some uh, pretty impressive recording, too. She was a singer. So she's 
all I had ever seen her in until I watched this movie was the Omega Man, I have to admit, because uh, I'm sorry, I, I punched out a general hospital long before she came along. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. But she did a lot of television work in the 70s. Uh, she was on Kojak and Barney Miller and Benson and Family Ties and Head of the Class and What's Happening and Golden Girls and all kinds of different things. And like I say, sadly, she did die of cancer on Halloween of 1995. Mm. She was in Monkey Hustle. Yes. With Rudy Ray Moore. Yep. And Rudy Ray, it's interesting, I got the box set, I was showing you earlier before we recorded, yep. for my son for his birthday, Dolomite box set, all those movies and everything. We were watching a documentary on there, and it was interesting about it is he mentions in that documentary that he objects to the term black exploitation. Really? Yeah. He said that, you know, you don't call it Italian exploitation or, you know, any other ethnicity. It's like, why do we call it black exploitation? It's, it's it, they're black centric movies. Why True. are we exploiting? It's not exploiting. It's just kind of an interesting take that Rudy Ray had on it. And, and I can see his point of view, but to be honest, it just grew out of the fact that it was a black exploitation movies were a subset of exploitation movies. And there were different types of exploitation movies. There were nun movies and there were student nurses movies and and you know every kind of exploitation movie under the sun and black exploitation is just one of those catchy terms that mm-hmm. got used and still used and will probably never go away but to be honest I wouldn't be against a better term for it but that one's kind of stuck and I don't think it's going anywhere right a little tidbit there well one of the last things that Rosalind Cash did is she appeared in my possibly all time favorite black, uh, black exploitation late in the cycle film and she was in Tales from the Hood mm-hmm. and um, Dr. Cushing was her title character correct name, which is awesome <laughs> I know I know I know it's like just that little capper I mean this woman did King you know she was with James Earl Jones and King Lear on stage but what I'm gonna I'm gonna remember for the Omega Man Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde and the fact that she played a character named Dr. Cushing in Tales from the Hood so yeah I'm a sick sick man <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with that In this neighborhood is a house where souls never rest. You're invited to share their secrets. I've been waiting for you, boys. You're invited to share their tales. Unless, of course, you're scared. Tales of madness. (laughs) Of revenge. The gods don't want you there. They want reparation! Of horror. He thinks he needs to kill the monster. Now, your most terrifying nightmare and your most frightening reality are about to meet. On the streets. And this is a trip, homie. I don't need nothing from no house of dead folks, okay? Death. It comes in many strange packages. The producer of Menace to Society and executive producer Spike Lee will take you to the outer limits of the inner city. Welcome to hell! Tales from the Hood. Chill. Or be chilled. Hey man, I don't need to be hearing this, man. Written and produced by Darren Scott. Written and directed by Rusty Kunda. All right, let's dive into a synopsis of Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde. 1976, 
Uh, Los Angeles doctor Henry Pride, played by Bernie Casey, is an accomplished, wealthy, African-American medical doctor working on a cure for cirrhosis of the liver along with his colleague, Dr. Billy Wirth, played by Rosalind Cash. Desperate to create this remedy for liver, liver failure and liver problems of all type, Pride conducts unethical experiments on others and then eventually himself, which turns Pride into a white, Frankenstein-like monster with superhuman strength and invincibility as he begins to rampage throughout Watts, killing prostitutes and pimps. After not being able to test his remedy on Linda, who is a patient of his, Pride goes into a rampage, which results in him being chased down by the police Cornered at Watt's Tower, Pride attempts to escape by climbing up the towers, which leads to the police gunning him down as he falls to his death. That is the shortest form version of this film that I can give you that really kind of leaves out some of the juiciest parts. Now, this being a black exploitation film, heavy on exploitation, there are a lot of things in this movie that are there because they know they will get butts on seats. That's the whole point of making these kind of movies in the first place is you want an audience. And I think that it's interesting that the very first thing they do, you're not five minutes into this movie. The, the movie's first few scenes introduce you to uh, the main two characters, our two doctors, um, played by Bernie Casey and Rosalind Cash, and their research. They're talking to a few people who are obviously uh, benefactors of their research, people who are putting up the money or at least very interested in uh, the, the research that they're doing. And uh, then we segue into the other part of uh, Dr. Henry Pride's life, which is that as a medical doctor, he does a lot. He does volunteer work at a, a free clinic in downtown Los Angeles. Now, that's where we're less than five minutes into the movie, and slam! Here's some nudity for you. Yep. But the strange thing about this is almost as if they knew, hey, we need to get some nudity in here. But this is the most clinically presented <laughs> nudity. I have ever seen in an exploitation movie in my life. Yeah. Because there is absolutely nothing erotic about this scene. This is a doctor examining and talking to his patient, and it's clear these two people have known each other for years. She's been a patient of his for a very long time. She's a prostitute. Right, she's a prostitute, and he's obvi- he obviously knows this. There's no judgment on his part. He treats her as he would treat any patient. And it's through these con- this conversation and this scene that we're given a... <laughs> Female nudity. This woman is completely nude during the entire scene. Uh, with, of course, the caveat that she has a sheet draped over her uh, the lower part of her body for most of the time. Because I don't know if anybody else is aware of this, but there was this very odd prohibition in uh, 70s about nudity, which was you could not show bush. Right. For whatever reason, <laughs> you, could, you could show breasts and ass all day long. But the moment you got anywhere near the front part of the human body and started showing hair, everybody went crazy and everybody freaked out and you couldn't right. do it. So Yeah, and and this is an interesting this I tell you, this scene in particular I find pretty interesting. The, actually I find the relationship between uh, her character, which is what is her character's name? Linda? Linda. Yeah, Linda. Linda and the doctor is interesting because Okay, so Doctor Pride is your is your lead, and Doctor Worth is his assistant. Now right. it's set up that they're dating; they have a relationship. They have a relationship. They are dating one another, but really, Doctor Worth is barely in this movie, and the the juiciest role is Linda's role. And you would think that that would be the role that Rosalind Cash would have played, 
But I think because they wanted someone who would provide nudity, maybe that's oh, why Rosalind didn't play that part. That may be, you, you could be onto something there. I'm and not the sure. The actress that played that part is called Maria Henry. She was in Three the Hard Way. Okay, with yeah. Jim Kelly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, just got some, and some, some pretty cool movies. Well, you may, be, you may be onto something there with the nudity because, like I say, it almost seems as if, because there's no more nudity in the film. Am I correct? I don't remember mm-hmm. there being mm-hmm. any more nudity no. in the film past this opening sequence. So it's almost as, I mean, it really does feel like the movie is going, okay, look, here's your nudity. Here, here's some TNA. Are you happy? Good. Now we're going to tell our story. And it's, it's interesting because, uh, in general, the reason that nudity is put into one of the, an exploitation film or pretty much any film, uh, other than it being, uh, <clears throat> quote unquote, a natural outgrowth or a part of the story or something that needs to be in the story to communicate a piece of information is because it's titillating. But like I say, this is the least titillating female nudity I've seen on screen in a long, long time. And believe me, I've studied female nudity on screen. (laughs) I've watched a lot of it in slow-mo. It's it's hard to to be a a, a, a study. You have to really dive in and you may force yourself, but I understand. It's, 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 It's difficult work sometimes. Yeah. Now this this what's interesting about this scene also though is the dialogue that's going on between the the conversation between yeah between the two characters because they're having a conversation about why he works there and she is blatantly coming on to him and he is kind of putting her off you know and it seems pretty clear that she's they've played this game for a long time mm-hmm. uh, he knows she's attracted to him. She knows that he's he's probably never going to take a bite of that particular apple for whatever reason, whether he she knows he's in a relationship or that's just you know something oh, he's, he's a doctor she's a prostitute you know well, there's, there's yeah, a class or, thing or do, or doctor patient or a class thing now you're right then that's one of the things that they get into in this conversation is that she finally does kind of pull that string on the fact that he is a wealthy doctor mm-hmm. and him him you know devoting time to this free clinic is kind of, you know, you, you can read it in several ways. Is he, you know, saving his, you know, his conscience about how wealthy he is or how wealthy he's become? Because we later do find out that he definitely came from very poor, a very poor background. Or is this a man who is actually a really good man who's doing this without those thoughts in his head. Right. And, and she also jabs, uh, jabs him about how black he is, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. and you're not black enough. You know, I bet you even, I bet you're so white. You, you work for the man, you in the institution, you know, you're so white, right. you probably drive a white car. You know, I mean, she really, which he does. Which he does, which is funny. <laughs> yeah. Which is a funny little, but, you know, so there's that whole, there's kind of a race thing going on. It's like. And a class you know, thing. A very, a class a very thing. obviously a class thing. And that class thing, plays itself out later in the movie and of course I'm going to we're going to jump I'm freewheeling it now we're going to jump we're going to jump around inside this that relationship plays out over the course of the movie with some with some strange things but one of the things is that she does eventually the two of them do eventually go out to dinner on what might be considered a date but neither one of them I don't think either one of them really think that this is a date that's going to lead to some kind of romantic interest it seems really more along the lines of on both of their parts it just being two people who are going to go out to dinner because their friends are going to take the time to get to sit down and eat and get to know each other a little bit better and and kind of go from there well sort of but uh, you got to remember on his part so oh yeah he's got he's got a very he's different got agenda ulterior motives yeah. because he has been working on this this formula to for for liver regeneration yeah, of some sort, yeah. and 
he realizes that, hey, I need a test subject for this. And Linda's perfect. She's got, you know, the liver problem. Maybe I can test this out on her. So his whole thinking was, I'll ask her out and, and, you know, Smooth, smoothly ask her about participating in a kind of unsanctioned and unethical experiment here. <laughs> exactly. And that's what, that's what it is. Yeah. And here's the thing. By, this po- by that point in the film, though, we've already seen him step over the ethical line because we start out, we watch him, we watch him in a, in a montage. We watch him doing uh, experiments on different lab, uh, different lab mice and things like that mm-hmm. where we, we see him getting some results with these lab animals and he becomes convinced that he needs to take it to human trials. Now, Dr. Worth says, you know, flat out, no, 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 we can't be, we, that's not a, we're not ready for that step yet. Mm-hmm. We're years away from experimenting on humans because we don't, you know, we're not even getting stable results from the lab animals. I don't know why you're wanting to make this jump, but Dr. Pride takes it upon himself to when he is presented in that hospital where they do the research with a, with a patient who is at death's door, who's not going to live through the night, he He secretly injects this older lady with his formula to see what happens. That is the point where, um, and of course it plays out in much the same way in the original story, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where this is a basically good man with good intentions in what he's doing. But he takes unethical steps. He takes Mm -hmm. steps that are clearly wrong. And this is the first one that he takes. Once he starts down that unethical path, we all know where it's going to go. Because, come on, we've all, you've either read the story or you've seen one version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde mm-hmm. or another. What's interesting about the, the woman he injects is she, she immediately turns into this creature, which ashen face monster looks very reminiscent of uh, the, the creatures from the Omega Man, which is a movie that... that Several have you know came out several years before this, right? Five years but before. I have to think that the makeup design had to have been influenced by it because it, they're very similar looking. Too close. They're very very similar looking. We should point out that the makeup effects in this movie were done by Stan Winston. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is early work from him, but uh, bizarrely effective work. We should state up front that one of the things that he does, besides creating this you know crazed old woman who turns pale and goes crazy, is that. He's the, he's the man responsible for trying to make Bernie Casey look like someone who's turned white. <laughs> yeah. Okay? Now, because that is one of the side effects. This drug uh, turns you white. The, the lab rat that he injects turns into a white rat. Right, right. And, and the same thing with him. So it, it, that sounds ridiculous. And it is. But that is done <laughs> to... To be honest, it's done to make a, a, a larger point that the film could could have probably made it a different way because quite honestly, there's almost no way to make Bernie Casey look white. He's mm-hmm. he, his facial features, the way he holds himself. It just, it doesn't work. And I think they tried really hard and I'm willing to give it to them because the movie is, is working well enough for, and especially when the, the, with the personality change, let's once we get to the point where, Dr. Pride is is not he's not getting any joy from anybody about wanting to do human experiments. And so he takes it upon himself and he injects himself with the serum, which is, you know, it's what we all know is coming. If you if you know this story, you know it's gonna happen. And so what we end up with is a very tall, very pissed off, very pale Bernie Casey 
kicking the holy living shit out of anybody who crosses him. Yeah, and the Stan Winston makeup in this, he he not only does the white face on him, but it's not just white face. He's got uh, exaggerated brows and cheekbones and, and kind of yes. almost, it really is is a sort of Frankenstein makeup. It is vaguely Karloffish in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And the, you're right, the exaggerated brows. And the, he's uh, a big guy. He's so much bigger than everybody else on screen. Yeah. That he really looks like a monster. I forget how tall Bernie Casey is, but... They may have even just picked actors to be, you know, to be in these fights with him who were shorter than average to begin with to make him look even more towering than he really is. Yeah. Because he's a pretty tall guy to begin with. Did you notice his outfit? I don't know if you noticed the outfit he wears when he's when, when, when he's turned. No, no, he, no, no. He has an outfit he looks he wears, and if you look at it, he's got this. It's almost like a polo. You pull over. Okay. He's got a white area where it comes down from the collar with with lines that come off of it. It's it's. Uh, striped shirt. Okay. He wears a jacket zipped up part part of the way. Yes, now remember and it that. it leaves a V exposed where all you see is the white with the, the lines coming off of it. It looks like a rib cage right there under yeah, his chin. Yeah. It looks like a rib cage. Which you're right, makes you're me right. Almost look, think more, even more skeletal monster look. Yeah, that, yeah. That's his suit. He changes several times and it's like, <laughs> when, I become, when I become Mr. Hyde, I'm going to change into my suit, damn it. This is my outfit. This is my monster outfit. Oh, my ass-kicking outfit. <laughs> my ass-kicking outfit? I like that. We got a little windbreaker in his little striped shirt. Billy, you're still here? Obviously. Uh-oh. I recognize that tone. You used that old lady as a guinea pig, didn't you? We could have lost everything. Look, I took an oath to save lives, and sometimes that oath itself makes it very difficult. Henry, I love you. But I found some of that serum missing again this morning. So you're accusing me? Yes. Look, I know how important this project is to you, but if we get involved in anything illegal, it's going to ruin us. Don't worry about me, okay, Billy? I'm all right. You haven't heard a word I said, have you? I mean, you, you don't even hear me. Although this is adapted from the obvious short story that we all know and love, um, it was written by... Well, who's the name of the writer who wrote this? Well, the writer was a guy named Larry LeBron. Don't know anything about him, but it's from an idea by Lawrence Woolner. Okay. Now, that, what's kind of interesting, I was doing some research on this guy, and um, he, is a, he was a producer who uh, basically uh, founded Dimension Pictures uh, in the 70s. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, he, he was an exhibitor who made a number of films, is what it says, including several with Roger Corman. But what's even more interesting is before that, he had another production company called the Warner Brothers, an American releasing company formed in, formed in 1955, made up of his brothers Lawrence, uh, him, his, his brothers Bernard and David Warner. Uh, his Lawrence started a New Orleans drive-in theater in 1948. His brother Bernard had previously opened the first drive-in theater in Memphis, Tennessee which okay. I looked up was called the Lamar Drive-In, although one site said it was called Southland Drive-In, so I'm not sure which it was. But anyway, thought that was kind of interesting, a little Tennessee connection there. Well, uh, yeah, and, and as, uh, to be honest, when I saw his name, I'm not Woolner is something that rang a bell. Mm-hmm. And so him being a producer um, pretty pretty much rang true because, there, like I say, that name rang a bell. There was something about it that, that triggered a memory. And the Warner Brothers, they did some some pretty cool movies like Hillbillies in the Haunted House, Las Vegas Hillbillies, Bingo. Castle of the Living Dead, Castle of Blood. 
Okay. Some fun stuff. I was about to say, hold on, that's where it comes from, because I just recently finally suffered through, I mean, uh, watched Hillbillies in a Haunted House. Oh, come on. You gotta love that movie, man. No, I, I don't. I love that movie. Okay, now look. Here's what I'll give it. I think it's a terrible film. It's got a lot of great music in it. I'll yeah. gra- I will grant it yeah. that. It's got a lot of great music. There's some really good tunes. <clears throat> They're wedged into the film. Most of the most of the songs are wedged into the film in the most haphazard fashion that they could possibly come up with. Turner's showing it this month. Again? Oh, yeah, that's right. They're showing it again. I, I saw it a few months ago. Turner, Tur- Apparently, Turner's got the deal on this one. TCM hey, man, I show it all the time, too. I love that movie. Ferlin Husky, man. <laughs> he's, he's, he's fun in it. But it's, come on, man, that's a terrible... Okay, we'll stop talking about Hillbillies in the House. Gorilla. It's got, a, it's got a man in a gorilla suit. Come it's on. It's got Lon Chaney Jr., <laughs> Basil Rathbone, and John Carradine, but that don't make it any good. Ah, oh, jeez. Anyway... Lawrence Wilner, a producer whose name was attached to a number of movies that I'm well, that I'm well aware of, uh, including uh, Deliver Us from Evil in 75, uh, Terminal Island in 73, Group Marriage in 73, which I'm, I'm curious to see, uh, The Twilight People, he even... Uh, Love The Twilight People. Uh, yeah, he even, he, he even somehow got his name attached to uh, one of my uh, favorite Antonio Margheriti films that was, co- that was co-written by Mario Bava, a film called The Young, The Evil, and The Savage, which is a, a little giallo that takes place at a, a girls' school. And if you ever get a chance to check it out, it's also known under the title Naked You Die. So, like I say, Lawrence Wilner's name is something that just yeah. was floating around in the air. As soon as I saw that name, I was like, idea. So he's like sitting around one day drinking. Well, he probably just said, you know what, we should do We should do a, a black Jekyll and Hyde. Call it Dr. Black. Take that and, and run with it. <laughs> Take that and run with it. Yeah, pretty, you know, yeah you're right. Probably it probably, probably was. Probably exactly what it was. You're right. You're right. <laughs> He also supposedly wrote two Sherlock Holmes scripts. One called Sherlock Holmes and the Adventures of the Werewolf of the Baskervilles. And one called Sherlock Holmes and the Adventures of the Golden Vampire, which was going to star Alice Cooper. When did he write this? (laughs) I don't know. This is what I was reading earlier about the man. Oh, my Lord. I mean, probably about the same time that he made Black the Ripper. But could you imagine... Alice so, Cooper in a Sherlock Holmes movie. I mean, so Larry LeBron, the man whose sole acting—I mean, sole, direct, sole writing credit that I can discern—is Doctor Black and Mister Hyde. Supposedly wrote. No, no, not him. Lawrence Wilner. Oh, Lawrence came Wilner. up with the idea. Oh, got to say, hey, let's make a. Let's yeah. Let's thank let's goodness make my brain. Black. My brain was melting. Okay. Yeah, the Lawrence Wilner, the distributor. Okay, so Lawrence He's, Wilner. First of all, I want to see both these movies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's be honest. Yeah. Oh, I man. love Monster Dog. Have you seen Monster Dog? Nobody loves Monster Dog. I, I love Monster Dog. It's got Alice Cooper in it. It's a werewolf movie. Come yes, on. it has Alice Cooper. And yes, it's a werewolf movie, but it is so freaking boring. Oh, oh, Monster on, Dog. Oh, the fact that didn't they get a Blu-ray release? Yeah, that's there. That that should be punishable by death. Why did anybody? <laughs> oh. And, and it's got some great songs in there. I mean, no, no argument, no argument at all. Any chance to see Alice Cooper uh, do anything is a blast. I really, he's a, he's a great entertainer. I love watching him do what he does. Mm. But man, I, how can you love? I know why you love Monster Dog because Alice Cooper's in it. That's it. Uh, you're enough said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's all you need to know, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, what about his wife? Mm. <laughs> That's what I said. And he said, don't worry about that doll. I'll tell you the new live-in maid. 
I'd love to be a hunk. I'm the distinguished pimp, Preston. Mm-hmm. Preston. Shit. That dude don't never let up on my ass. Is he still asking you to join his fucking Abby Rents harem? Girl, you better believe it. Hey, he's got some good connections uptown. Yeah, well, I don't care what he's got. When I quit tricking for Silky, I promised myself that I wasn't working for no goddamn man again. What I make, I'm going to keep. Oh, well, here's to hooker's lib, lady. <laughs> Besides, someday I'm getting out of this racket. Well, what you going to do, hon? I don't know, but there's got to be something better than this. The more interesting aspects of this movie... Like I say, I'm going to jump around inside this because uh, the the plot is one that you already know. This is this is straightforward, clear. If you've seen one Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know this plot, and you know how it's going to play out, and you know it's going to end in a sad fashion. And we've already we've already told you that he you know he's killed at the end of it. The, he tries to climb the this tower and is killed. Mm-hmm. But the more interesting aspects of this movie is that it how it. And this happens in a lot of black exploitation films, not just the horror genre, but all of them, where you get a kind of look inside the way the the black characters and 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 the black uh, actors and maybe the the writers and the and the people who are producing these movies saw the black culture at the time, and so we get a look inside, uh, you know, through the Linda character, we get a look at a couple of different prostitutes. Their dealings with a couple of pimps that they're not having anything to do with. We get uh, kind of the over-the-top pimp characters, which is kind of a, kind of a standard of black exploitation cinema, especially the the stuff that centered itself in uh, any kind of urban setting where they're going to play around with the the crime element, which is pretty much all of them. And so you end up with kind of the sta- I would hate to say it I hate to say it this clearly, but it's kind of standard characterizations and stereotypes of those type of, of these types of characters and these types of people. But I will say that I enjoyed the dialogue that these characters have to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can. Pre- it's pretty much pro forma. The 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 things they're going through, the 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 aspects of their storyline, their little subplots are pretty much obvious. But they're they're handled pretty well, and I enjoyed watching these actors go through their paces. Uh, there's only a couple of moments where I felt like the acting fell down. Most of the time, I thought they were doing a pretty damn good job. There are the uh, we even get uh, two really good cop characters I think played mm-hmm. by a couple of actors who uh, uh, who do a fantastic job. Um, you got G two Kumbuka is the is Lieutenant Jackson, and uh, this guy was interesting because he was in both of uh, William Crane's movies. He was in Blackula also. He played a char- character called Skillet in Blackula. Okay, uh, but he's the the black cop in this one. He was in a, a Night Gallery episode called The Ring with the Velvet Ropes, if you remember, where a boxer oh, okay. is fighting, and then after his, his uh, fight, he winds up going into another dimension, and he has to fight a guy there. He's the the first person that gets knocked out by this boxer. Well, And yeah. then, then that guy has to go into the other dimension and fight Chuck Connors. Well, G- Ooh, I don't want to fight Chuck Connors. <laughs> G2 Kumbuka, uh, G2 Kumbuka, that very interesting actor who was in a lot of movies and television shows. Um I do, I do think it's sad. He was in uh, he was in a Walter Hill film, and it's Walter Hill's crappiest film, Brewster's Millions. Mm. It's like, come on, man. This guy, look at this guy. He's amazing. He'd be perfect. Interesting about that movie is that he and the other cop in this movie, uh, a guy named Milt Kogan is his name, uh, plays 
Lieutenant Harry O'Connor. Um, they both appear in Brewster's Millions. Wow. Okay. They're also both in Bachelor Party. Oh, the Tom Hanks movie. Yeah. From 84. That, that's, that, that's, that's wild. I bet they were on, on set talking about Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. I can see it in my head now. Or both of them trying to figure out how to erase it off their resume just as quickly as possible. <laughs> Got that off your resume yet? No, shit. I need to get that thing off there now, man. Crap. <laughs> well, uh, you know, by, by the way, G2 Kambuka, Alabama boy. Hmm. He, he comes from our neck of the woods. Well, Montgomery County, but close enough. I'm willing to claim him. Well, he's great, and he steals the show in this in this movie. There's no doubt. Oh, he's great. He's I think got he's the best phenomenal. lines, and his delivery yeah. is hilarious. He is a he's a standout performer in the film, and I really enjoyed seeing him in this. And he immediately makes me want to seek out anything else he ever did. I don't know that I'm ever going to watch the episodes of Hunter he was in because I don't care. But you know what I'm saying, <laughs> yeah, right? Well, well, he's got eighty something credits on IMDb. So you got a lot to choose from. <laughs> you got a lot to dive into. That's for sure. One of the, 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 the things that stood out immediately for me in this is that because they are going out of their way to, you know, use that Stan Winston makeup to look Bernie Casey, to make Bernie Casey look more monstrous than you would, you would kind of normally expect, you, you, get, you do get a bit of a, a, a Frankenstein vibe off of him, whereas uh, in general with the Mr. Hyde character, I always picture, I always picture Mr. Hyde as more of a, a kind of slimy, slithering, hunched over kind of bastard character, as opposed to a large, hulking, monstrous, really strong. Hmm. You know, I picture Hyde as vicious but cunning, not necessarily hulking and violent, or well, or hulking and you know, incredibly strong. Because it becomes clear that when um, uh, Bernie Casey's walking around in this makeup, you really don't want to piss him off because he'll pick you up and sling you across the room or sling you across the street or throw you through a, gla- a plate glass window. And so that aspect of it does seem to be pointing to uh, an increase of strength that I just don't see as uh, the kind of the norm for the Mr. Hyde character. Mm-hmm. Vicious, mean-spirited, nasty, uh, narcissistic, and cruel, yes, but not superhuman strength. That's not something that I generally associate with the Mr. Hyde character. So it seems like they're playing off the idea that this guy's huge to begin with, and he's just this huge... It, like I say, he seems more like a Frankenstein monster than a Mr. Hyde. Not that I have a problem with that. Variations on a theme make me happy, keep things interesting, keep me off balance. That's great. But when you saw him at the end of the movie climb up onto that tower, before I ever started doing any research on this film, the first thing that went through my head is, holy crap, this is King Kong. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what this is. Which immediately puts you in mind of all the nasty-ass epithets that get thrown at black people, especially black men, immediately calling them apes and calling them monkeys. And that means that this film is going out of its way to draw that line and underline it and point to him as this simian creature climbing up this tower. Mm -hmm. And it's really odd that they they would do that. Now, as soon as I thought that, I'm going to have to admit that before I ran across this this uh, this train of thought, train of thought, the first time that I ever ran across the idea of linking the story of King Kong to the story of African slaves being brought to America was in Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Before that scene in that basement in that bar, when they're playing that game and somebody brings that up and starts talking about it, one of the Germans characters starts talking about it. It's the first time I ever heard this theory and heard this idea of linking those stories and one being the story of the other in my life. And yet here in 1976, 
We have what may be the genesis of this idea in Quentin Tarantino's imagination, or at least where he first saw this presented on screen, where you cannot ignore it, and it kind of grows from there. So that turns out to be something that is a better-known theory in film circles than I was aware of, but clearly it has to have been an unconscious thing amongst the, the creators of King Kong, but it fits. It really does work. And the fact that this movie goes out of its way to draw that King Kong parallel at the end where you can't miss it. If you've seen King Kong, you are looking at the same thing. The way they mm-hmm. shoot it, the angles that the, the, the camera takes, the way the, the way the lights are done, the way the they're shot. shot down by flying. It's, hell, well, it's helicopters, but it, yeah. you know, same thing. There's no way to get away from it. And that's just another really interesting uh, aspect of this movie pointing to this being a lot more interesting than you think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Well, this whole, this this script, it's got a ridiculous plot and everything, but it's got some serious subject matter that's presented very smartly. I agree, yeah. There's, well, I mean, even if you, it's very easy to also draw some nasty parallels between, and it and it's done easily, it's done within the, the regular structure of the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde storyline, which is, it's very easy to see this doctor conducting these unethical experiments and link it to the Tuskegee experiments, the, those horrible experiments where black men were allowed to suffer with syphilis for years without treatment just to see what would happen to them. That unethical series of medical experiments done in the 20th century, for God's sake, are the kind of things that immediately a black audience is going to key into when you start talking about this wealthy black doctor conducting unethical, unethical experiments in every case, on another black character. Mm-hmm. He's not conducting them on any white... There's never a white victim of his at all. It's the, the weirdest form of black-on-black crime I've and seen on screen. I would like to talk to the, to the screenwriter about this also yeah. and, and ask, pick his brain as far as uh, what his thoughts were for turning Hyde white. It's like, were you, were you implying that the white man's bad were you implying you know it just kind of makes you wonder where he's going there because all of the negative things about all the bad deeds in the movie are, are perpetrated when he turns white and Ex- matter of well, fact, except for the except for the, the the thing that starts the whole ball well, rolling. and you're right yeah that's right you're right because the whole thing it, so maybe it's just his character well not only that yeah well that's just it the it's almost as if the the film is going out of its way to point out that the flaw was there in the character to begin with. The flaw to push past what was right, the thing that was right to do. You don't do this to other human beings because you could kill them. And you're a doctor. You're never. You're, you're supposed to do anything but try to harm. That's mm-hmm. the code, the Hippocratic Oath, for when God's he, sake. He takes Linda out on their date. He brings her back to his house. She thinks... You know, we're getting to get know each other better. You know, she's on cloud nine because she yeah. really likes him. She thinks, and she's hey. thinking this may actually turn into a relationship. They yeah. get back to his apartment and he's like, hey, um, I've got this drug and uh, it might really be able to help you. And she's like, what? Experimental drugs? No, I'm not into that. It's, it's, yeah. I'll pass. And he's like, well, what if I force you to do it? I know. He says like something to the effect of, what if I don't give you a choice? Yeah. And that is a, that is a line... Past which, just saying that, and he's not—he's saying it in deadly earnest. He's not saying it as if, if that were a question. The way he said, he phrases it as a question. But he's standing up, he's towering over, and his tone of voice and, and the way he's presenting that statement. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. kind of putting a question mark at the end of it, as if he, as if he were asking a question. But it comes off as a threat. And the very next thing he does is break out the hypodermic. 
Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, Doc, we're, we're done here. Yeah, Take and she gets home. up and she's the hell out of the room. <laughs> with good reason. Yeah. So there's a lot going on in this movie. Now, I can make, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm about to, I'm going to point out that I don't think, this, this is by far not a perfect film. The budget shows at times. As a matter of fact, the budget shows a fair amount. I do love the location shooting. Um, of course, it's one of my favorite things to bitch about in movies, which is that, uh, wow, it's a low-budget film. takes place in L.A. I wonder why. Uh, it's because, well, we can shoot in L.A. because that's where we are. But I like seeing the location shooting because we're on real streets at night. A lot, you know, Almost uh, all of the things that go that go south and that go wrong and all the violence mm-hmm. takes place at night in real places. There are, there are a few sets, but they're pretty good sets. And that's not where I feel the budget falls down. Where I feel the budget falls down is it's clear that they didn't have the time to necessarily do uh, enough camera setup sometimes to get the movie to look as professional as they may have wanted it to look. Also, it does show, I think that William Crane was primarily a TV director because there's, some uninteresting framing of shots at times, and there are times, especially during a couple of the fight scenes, when I wish he'd gotten a, a different angle to to edit into the to the fight sequences because sometimes it does it, it feels choreographed. Sometimes it feels like it's well done and it really feels fluid and it feels like we're watching some people actually fight. But there are some times when you can kind of see the seams and it doesn't feel like uh, it feels like we're watching something that wasn't uh, wasn't as carefully put together as it could have been. We should mention the cinematographer at this point also. Oh, certainly. Uh, a guy named Tak Fujimoto, I believe yep. is how you say it. Um, this guy, man, had a hell of a career. I mean, he went on to, to work on some pretty impressive movies. Which is another reason why I wish we had a good print of this movie to see. Because if you look at what this man went on to do, um, it's clear he knows how to shoot a movie. This is the man who photographed Silence of the Lambs, The Sixth Sense, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Philadelphia. I mean... Yeah, that's some pretty impressive. Um, basically all of... Uh, oh, um, M. Night Shyamalan's yeah. early films, yeah. Basically, M. Night, yeah, exactly. He's an impressive cinematographer. As director of photography, he's worked on uh, he's worked on so many films. He was also the director of, of photography on one of my favorite little-known 90s films, Devil in a Blue Dress, the fantastic adaptation of the Walter Mosley novel with uh, Denzel Washington. That is a great movie, and it's it's a period piece that takes place in the uh, the 40s, the late 40s. And when you see that and you see how it's photographed, you'll know what I'm talking about. This cinematographer knew his stuff, which is, like I say, man, I wish we had a good print of this movie. <laughs> we really, really do. They have a time for find out who she was? Yeah. She was Sally Lewis. Lived in the complex. She was a hooker. Boyfriends, husbands, suspects. In the black community, Harry, nobody knows nothing, nobody sees nothing, and nobody hears nothing. Well, somebody really did a job on her, didn't they? Yeah. That's what bothers me. What do you mean? Well, you know, if it had been the regular bit, like a murder, stabbing, shooting, beating, then we could understand it and have the proclivity to solve it. But this little lady has had her neck crushed, like in a vice, meaning somebody has put some shit into the game. Know what I mean, man? So, you know, uh, the end of the movie, he's climbing the tower. Well, that's the Watchtowers, which is a kind of famous place. It's uh, on the National Register of Historic Places. Right. 
Um, what's interesting about that is that's the climax of this film, but the climax of Abar, the first Superman, also takes place on those same towers. Yeah, you're right. Now, I remember that. Now, that's a movie that has started much like... Uh much like a few other rare cult films here lately, that has started popping up about once a year on Turner Classic Movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're right. that uh, Of course, it's not uh, you know, a violent end. Uh, the, the one in Abar, the, the, the Black Superman, is a very different ending. But yeah, you're right. I'd forgotten that it takes place there. You're yeah. right. So this is kind of an interesting thing that they both wrapped up there. Um, the special effects in this movie were by a guy named Harry Woolman. Um, he worked on a ton of movies, including uh, Abar, the first Superman, uh, Dolomite, Human Tornado, Incredible Melting Man, Evil Speak, Laser Blast. So, wow, really? There's some okay. cool connections from this movie to some. I mean, they, these people went all on to work on all tons of movies. This, this will be the second episode in a month that someone's mentioned the Incredible the Incredible Melting Man. On. Fun. <laughs> it's a uh, who. I could never call it a good movie, but I, I still I still enjoy it. I think and, I just like everything. <laughs> <laughs> now, there, there's a few movies I don't like. Anybody who's going to sit and defend Monster Dog <laughs> may just like everything. You're right, but 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 it's just it's just weird what I, what I don't like. You know, <laughs> it's just like the, the uh, what we were talking about earlier. Uh, I don't know the Buckaroo Banzai. Oh yeah, you don't like Buckaroo don't Banzai. Like Buckaroo By the way, Rosalind Cash is in Buckaroo Banzai, and Larry does not like Buckaroo Banzai. So, Send your hate mail you to go. Larry Underwood. <laughs> anyway. Um, there was another film that uh, Bernie Casey and Rosalind Cash were in. Um, uh, Cornbread, Earl, and Me. Which is a movie. It's uh, it's a black cast movie uh, I've never seen. It's a but drama. I hear, yeah, I hear a lot of good things about it. It's one of those that's like on the eventually need to check this out mm-hmm. list. Basketball players kill. Yeah. And this kind of thing. They're dealing with the... It's supposed, to be, it's supposed to be a great movie. I just It's not one that I've ever seen. And it was shot before this movie. It took place the year before oh, okay, okay. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. Um, so they were reuniting on this movie. Tell me something. What is your favorite black exploitation horror movie out of the ones that we out of the the list that we ran through earlier? Mm-hmm. And you can even include things like uh, you know things that came later like Bones or uh, Tales from the Hood, whatever. What's your favorite black exploitation film? I, probably probably Blackula. I really do like Sugar Hill a lot though. Okay, under, understood. It's hard for me to choose because I do like Scream Blackula Scream more than I like Blackula. Um, I think Abby is completely insane and I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Sugar Hill, I'm going to keep giving tries until the day I die. I swear, please, somebody put out a Blu-ray of it. I tell you, I put Disco Godfather in the black exploitation. Well, it's black exploitation, but is it horror? I think it is. If you go back and watch that movie, there are some scenes in there where people are having the drug flashbacks, where there's demon creatures running at the camera and stuff. And there's, I mean, it's not, is it really a horror movie? Not really, but it's got some horror elements to it. Okay. I love Disco Godfather. It's probably my favorite Rudy Ray Moore <laughs> movie. I, I've watched it more than any of the others. Okay. It's got some segments in there, man, that are some pretty hard, straight up hard. It, I, I, I can understand. Um, what's your favorite black exploitation film? Just take the horror element off of it. What's your favorite black exploitation film? I mean, because, and that, see, that's a harder choice to make because mm-hmm. now you're talking about. Dozens and dozens of movies. Mm-hmm. You're talking about a lot, you know, spread across you know a decade plus of the heyday of black exploitation. When I start thinking about it, I love, I love Foxy Brown and mm-hmm. Coffee, mm-hmm. and I love Shaft's big score. Um, there, I mean, the thing the thing about the black exploitation movies is there are so many good ones. I'd have to pick something with Jim Kelly in it. Black Belt Jones. 
Yeah, Black Belt Jones. Oh, there Black Belt Jones, there, that's there a joy, man. That's, that's, that, that, there's my choice. Uh, can't go wrong with a Black Belt. We're going to McDonald's. Hello, Emilio. Come on, Seva. Listen to me, listen. Today, they'll give you some money. Look at it. They'll give you back your own money. No, no, no. I owe the Don a favor. Okay, bye. <laughs> that is a a damn fun movie. The the thing for me though, and this is a movie that we've we've covered here on the Bloody Pit before. Some of the weirder black films that I would categorize as black exploitation films to a degree, but that are also uh, you know kind of hybrids with other genres is like Take a Hard Ride, which is a spaghetti western cross with a black exploitation film, and it stars you know Fred Williamson and Jim Brown. It's it's a it's a hell of a movie, and it's also got Lee Van Cleef. So what more do you need, right? But there's so there's so many neat black exploitation movies, movies that I just I get such a kick out of. It. There's so many good ones. I mean, you've got three Shaft movies, you got two Slaughter yeah, movies. Yeah. I mean, sit down sometime and watch Black Caesar for God's sake. There's a good one for you. You mentioned Mon- Monkey Hustle earlier. That's a good film. I mean, there's there's so many great. Well, all the Ray Moore ones are entertaining. <laughs> Inter- yeah, they're entertaining. I'm great. Yeah, that's <laughs> best way to put it. <laughs> when you sent me the YouTube link for this film, the line under the, the the title of the film was "Better Than You Think," and I gotta admit, that's true. This movie was better than I thought it was going to be because I was walking into this movie with the mental image of the pain inflicted on me by Blackenstein because Blackenstein is one boring-ass movie. Mm -hmm. This is not a boring-ass movie. It's not perfect. It's got some pretty big flaws. It's budget shows at times. It's a little clunky in spots, but... This is an entertaining movie. Mm-hmm. Any movie that has some guy pissed off taking a Rolls Royce and crushing a guy against a wall <laughs> has got something going on, man. And this movie has that. First Absolutely. of all, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's, an, that's, a, that's a good death. You know, I think, um, I, th- I think Blackenstein is probably the aberration. When you take, if you take that out of the black exploitation horror, um, Collection. The rest of them are pretty entertaining movies. You know, you're right. I hadn't thought about it that way. And but it's Jay, really you're right. the worst of the bunch. That's, that's it is. The it is. Son. You, you take that one out and look at Blackula. And you got Sugar the two Blackula films of Sugar Hill and Abbey. Yeah, yeah. You may be right there. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a pretty fun little subgenre. I think it is, and I, I'll be honest. I'm glad to have finally sat down and first talked about black exploitation films at all. And the fact that we t- that we tackled one of the horror films is pretty much natural because God knows we both love horror movies. Anybody who can sit down and profess to love Monster Dog, I'm not going to leave it alone. I can't leave it alone. I'm sorry, but I can't leave it alone. <laughs> Obviously, you love horror movies and so do I. But um, this is a fun subgenre. If you have never sat down and watched any of these movies, start with Blackula. If that one don't turn your crank, try Sugar Hill. Because... They're very di- they're very different movies, and either one of them might be the thing that makes you smile and be entertained. Mm-hmm. I think they're both, and I think they're both good choices. They're good entry points, and they're good. They they're empowering for for the black people. For there's a lot of strong women roles in it. Yes, that, and that's something else. This movie has in spades. You're right because the something I meant to bring up with those two prostitute characters. These are not wishy washy characters. Yeah, they're prostitutes, but they own their own lives. 
They refuse to be they re, they refuse to be run by a pimp. Um, they have no trouble asserting themselves. There's some there's some really good characters in mm-hmm. this movie. Yeah, this is a smart movie. It's a lot smarter than it should be. Really. And, and and that's why that YouTube note of better than you think is pretty damned accurate. Yeah. Well, all right, man. I want to thank Larry. I want to thank you again for sitting down and talking to me about this crazy ass movie. Thanks for having me on. It's fun. And we'll uh, do it again sometime. We'll have to do it again sometimes. We'll, we'll pick some other weird subgenre that there are only about six examples of. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Like, uh, oh, I don't know, a uh, horror movie starring Alice Cooper. How's that? There you go. All right. What is there? Have you seen Suck? Oh, is that the vampire film? Yeah. Uh, the Canadian vampire film? Yes. Yes, that's a good movie. Fantastic movie. That, I forgot he was in that. I was thinking mm-hmm. Prince of Darkness, but hey. Prince of Darkness is great. Well, all yeah. right. Uh, once again, Larry, thank you very much for joining me. And uh, I guess that uh, we'll sign off now. I am Rod Barnett. That is Larry Underwood. And we will talk to you again sometime. Adios.